we have a lot kind of collectively that needs to, that needs to happen that needs to get done you know we need to reevaluate our society absolutely <laughs> I, I think that a lot of the the key issues that keep coming up um you know we like we had said before you know the um the child abuse slash human trafficking issue um you know a lot of racial issues have been coming up and a lot of these things are sort of systemic um you know you i like to watch a lot of history things and you see where okay so it may have been normal in the 1300s for a 13 year old to be wed to an adult male but you know that doesn't mean that it was right then we are now older and looking at things differently and you know children should not have sexual relationships with adult men period (laughs) one would think that's obvious you know there's in some there's still some states in the union here that you can if the parents give permission they can sell off an an underage not sell off but i mean give away well that's kind of what it seems like (laughs) even then uh yeah an underage child to to marriage to matrimony and you know when i did i did a sociology paper at hanover uh, and i was it was on child abuse and one of the things i found that was interesting um legally legalistically is that um a lot of these parameters like what you're talking about are set by the state yes and there's no um there's no continuity from state to state um there are sliding scales like if you're 14 um like there's different ranges for different age groups so if you're between like 14 Mm -hmm. and 17 in that group in one at least one state you know you can have sexual relationships with other people in that same age group without penalty (laughs) but if someone from the age group above Mm -hmm. and and i think that makes sense because yeah i mean there there are certain times that okay it might you know if they're only a couple years apart it's not that big a deal because you know if it was consensual right consensual consent is an important part of it um right there's a group of people who you know if you're underage you can't consent i mean that's i know i'm telling you it's tricky it's yeah there's a whole slew of things out there but the the scary thing is how much human trafficking is going on in our communities and we're just completely irrelevant one positive i can say is that since when i was first became aware of human trafficking as a problem there was literally no laws for traffickers so they would arrest people who were paying for sex with the child but the person selling them really wasn't doing a crime unless they kidnapped and kept the child in chains and then it was a minimal slap on the wrist thing really yeah wow but the laws are starting to change people are starting to recognize and i also think that you can't accept money that has to be a crime to accept money for prostituting out a child oh i agree (laughs) <laughs> I, I personally tend to be pretty hardcore. I feel that any violent crime against a child should be capital punishment if it's proven, which throws off a lot of my friends because they say, wow, that's really harsh, you know, and they're completely against it. But I, they aren't rehabilitated. They do it over and over and over and over and over again. 
So a couple of things on that in Saudi Arabia, that was actually the case. And I learned of a sting. They actually, not only do they investigate it, but they did a sting. And if they proved to, to see if the child's allegations against the parent, um, they said was molesting them was actually was. And so they had video of it, mm -hmm. of the parent anyway. And, and I so think they that's, were able you know, to, yes, when you have irrefutable proof that this back. was done, I'm sorry, you shouldn't get a better education than most people can afford for free and cable TV when many working families can't afford it. But right. that's my thought. So, so there's that. And then what was the other? Oh, oh yeah. Um, the. I don't know. I get going off on a digression. It's a bad native trait. <laughs> oh, no, no. That's what, definitely one of the things that we were going to talk about. Um, they did this thing in Saudi Arabia. And that's when, oh, yeah, no, the studies. So the sociological studies on that show, though, that the, the survivors don't actually, if the, if the abuser is a parent or a close relative, the survivors generally don't wish for that parent to die and that could and so there's some concern about capital punishment causing mm -hmm. additional trauma to the child for having told and mm -hmm. that's the case um and given the kind of mindset that you know a child survivor can have if their abuser is a close parent or relative um would decrease the likelihood that they would tell someone if they knew that the penalty that is a valid point so there are some different you know considerations but overall our society legally does not give weight to protecting its children like it should and so no. I find it's kind of appalling that like jails are full of people from somewhat minor crimes non-violent crimes <laughs> and someone who has abused a child is like got probation. not it's not considered important <laughs> it's not and, and I, th I think that's terrible because I think that if you talk to most people on a one-on-one -on -one level they sh are against child abuse right exactly and so our this is where our the legality and the system does not reflect well the the values that people say that they have so either we don't actually have the the values where we value children or the system needs to change to reflect that we value our the children. The system needs to change to reflect the majority opinion. I think a lot of the problem is that around the world, we still have a culturally elite group that controls most of the wealth. And unfortunately, there are sadistic people who enjoy molesting children and pay a lot for that. There's a lot of terrible stories of survivors who, you know, it's not uncommon to see Epstein's and Weinstein's and, you know, a lot of these other big name people that have been hiding. That's why it still exists because some of the perpetrators are in positions of power to make the laws stay that way. Right. Which, you know, kind of leads us to another question, like who's in charge? And why are they in charge? How did they get to be in charge? You know, how did they get to have such an influence on our legal systems? And I think a lot of that has to do with um, money. Money. Yeah, money it's, it's, a, it's a type politics. of classism, really. 
Um, you know, there are there are unfortunately people in that upper crust that see all the rest of us as a proletariat still. You know, we are the serfs and we're only good for what they need us for. Um, in his book, uh, Homo Deus, uh, Yuval Noah Harari um, talks about um, how as time goes on and more um, of the technology is taking over jobs like your little self-scan checker at the grocery, there are going to be less and less jobs for people who are not academically gifted. You know, a lot of the labor type jobs and clerking type jobs are going to be taken over by machines. And then what are these people going to do? You're going to have these people who are unemployable, but still have life and value. And so there's kind of been in his book, he talks about the two main paths that in, you know, Europe is looking at the universal income path and giving everyone a base rate. And so then you can work on top of that to have the extras, but you won't starve, you won't go without healthcare. The US and the UN both have committees on depopulation. That is the other angle. What? Yeah. I had not, I have not heard about this. Oh, well, again, it's all, I natives tend to be on track with anything more so where they're trying to eliminate you (laughs) (laughs) because having had that in our past we tend to that's one of the lenses that colors things it's like okay so what are they really trying to do here right that's interesting But no it is and I've, I've actually posted several articles about it before on Facebook yeah no I've missed I've missed those because I would have jumped all over reading those now, well, it's a scary thought because I guess, I mean, if you truly believe that all life has value, especially human life, um, you see a lot of the Christian political groups talking about the value of human life. But in reality, are we really valuing human life or is it more about not aborting babies as far as the politicians are concerned because you see the same politician okay he votes against abortion but he cuts 80 percent of the funding on disabled children to me that's a conflict of of ethics there yeah i saw something recently that made me think of that let's see if i saved it somewhere 20 no Hmm. I can't, it was kind of like that, the unborn child is convenient to, is convenient. Yes. Because, you know, they want the child born, but then they denigrate the mother because she might need welfare to help. And, um, yeah, you know what I'm, you know what I'm talking about. Yeah. And it's just, I mean, I guess to me, a true pro-life stance is all life has value. We shouldn't be cutting people off just because they lack money because we have more than enough money to feed everyone and provide health care it's just that some people are greedy right this is by pastor dave barnhart who's allegedly by uh with a master's in divinity and a phd said the unborn are convenient group of people to advocate for they never make demands of you they are morally uncomplicated Unlike the incarcerated, addicted, or chronically poor, they don't resent your condensation or complain that you are not politically correct. 
Unlike widows, they don't ask you to question patriarchy. Unlike orphans, they don't need money, et cetera, and so forth. So it's almost as if being born, they have died to you. You can love the unborn and advocate for them without substantially challenging your own wealth, power, or privilege without reimagining social structures, apologizing, yes. or making reparations to anyone. And I saw that and I was like, holy, there's a little bit more to it. I read some of the beginning and the end of it, but that like really struck me. I'm like, oh my God. <laughs> that's spot on. Right? I was like, oh, that's gonna. Yeah, yeah cause that, that's a big thing that you get. I, I've been an advocate for human rights and Native American rights for quite some time. And you oh, get yeah. a lot of that where people are like, well, you're wanting payback and you're wanting this and you're wanting that. And whoa, wait a minute, that was never part of my narrative. <laughs> But why shouldn't it be? I mean, we should talk about it, you know, and I'm not saying that you should talk about it. I'm saying that like as a culture and as a country, maybe we should think about that. We should talk about that. Like we did some, you know, we shy away as a, as a culture from history, from saying, you know what, maybe the truth of history. Yeah. The truth of everything's whitewashed to make it perfect. Maybe it was wrong of, you know, wrong. Well, when we were still in school, they still taught, you know, we still talked about the trail of tears and things like that, but apparently. Well, and now it's, yeah. Now the history books say that they voluntarily went so that whites could have more land. (laughs) Oh no, there was nothing voluntary (laughs) about it. (laughs) Of course they voluntarily went. Oh my gosh voluntarily with guns at their backs (laughs) so they didn't get shot yeah it takes um so i think so the first thing that needs to be rectified the first thing that needs to be corrected is how we talk about it that we need to talk exactly and that's one of the big points that we try to make and you know everybody says well get over it it's in the past but what they don't realize is that generational trauma it is not gone mm-hmm. and there are many things that still occur today that are rooted in the history of colonialism that were written into the laws and they just haven't been changed like many people don't realize native americans could not legally use the amber alert until may 2019 holy cow yeah And you're still having problems getting that law enforced in some of the Western states. And I mean, for crying out loud, it's just advertising a missing child. Hmm. That's, I'm speechless, which is rare because. Well, and there's, there's a lot of things like that with the laws though. Um, Like the, the missing and murdered indigenous women. Um, obviously kidnapping and sex trafficking are, you know, felony crimes. And so when our girls are taken, the tribal police have no jurisdiction over a felony occurring on the reservation. The FBI does. And the local police have no jurisdiction. So, you know, we're getting five to 6,000 cases of missing and murdered indigenous every year. And the FBI can't keep up on all that. At a field office they don't keep up on all that. <laughs> that one guy in the field office. Yeah. And <laughs> maybe, maybe Deloitte. And, you know, so, so we've had this bill that has for five years been sitting on Mitch McConnell's desk. And all it says is what if local law enforcement and the tribal police can work together so that we can start to investigate 
and find some of our missing people dead. It's, it's terrible because, you know, I, I will pass around any missing person, child, adult, whatever. But what I find really sad is that 90% of the time, you know, when I go to check and see if the person's still missing, if they are any race other than Native American, they've usually been found in the couple of hours or however long it's been since whoever posted that. Right. And with our missing kids, that doesn't happen because we don't get the media attention. Many times the only sharing that goes on is on Facebook and other media sites. Right. I know. And, that. and it's just local people going out and looking. Oh, that's terrible to not have support. when you And have it needs violence. to change. And the good news is that, um, you know, I've been pushing it for a long time and even had a few meltdowns on my page where I'm like, okay, more people shared the two missing dog posts I had than the 27 missing native children. And my friends are like, hey, we're not seeing these posts. Hmm. Where are they? I'm like, they're on my wall. And so I figured out it has to be something with the, the way algorithms. the logarithms work on Facebook that were tagged as a native post as opposed to like a missing child or missing person post. So if people aren't looking at native stuff, they never see our missing people. Right. If, and also if there's not interaction. So if people aren't going through and commenting and sharing and doing that sort of things. Yes, it, and that's it, what I tell people, even if you just put prayers on it or something, right, every okay. time you you put something on there. And one of the things is I used to always use the, the sad faces. Well, I've gone to using the care one because sad ones are less likely to be sent to other people to see. Right. Okay. But you don't sense. want to love that somebody's missing. Right. I see. So I was happy mean. when the care came out and I've been trying to teach people, um, you know, like whenever I share, I try to um, reach out and put a care symbol when someone shares it to thank them for sharing it. Um, just little things that to get people to understand that doing those things are things that help it to get more publicity and more mm, shares. Right. That's because I haven't had any luck figuring out who you talk to on Facebook to change the way they no, tag it's, it. It's algorithms. So talking to the people who you want to be interacting with and, you know, hopefully, you know, coming on here because this was not something, it's something I kind of realized, but then was like, oh yeah. Um, sometimes of course seeing those makes me sad. And so I don't want to interact with it. I want to run away. Well, from and then it. I've had people who they say it's sad and I tell them, yes, I understand. You know, I had 27 friends and relatives murdered in the year after Standing Rock. Oh my and God. it, it almost devastated me. Yeah. I was, I was, it, I can't, you can't explain it. And it really, one of the, my triggers is when people have a flippant response about that, because it's like, you know, you may be able to go at sleep at night, not worrying about all of this, but I think about all those children and women. I pray for them every night. I do what I can to raise awareness and, um, uh, Sorry, I, I get emotional about no, the topic. Don't be and I, no, don't be sorry. I just wanted to make sure I wasn't, I didn't want to cut off anything that you might want to yeah, say. Yeah, no, I, it's a tribal it's school just, here. Did you know that? Just not far from me. Um, there's a, a tribal school here and 
not this, not this past January, because that was just like two weeks ago, but yeah. um, the January before the new year's, I went to the powwow, their new year mm-hmm. celebration. <clears throat> and, um, but one of the things that they, they brought awareness to the fact that there's still a school near me that is using an indigenous name for their mascot, which mm-hmm. I find appalling. And, but also they brought up, they did, they brought up the missing, the missing women and children. I, I think that the missing women and children is, in my opinion, one of the biggest problems we're facing. I mean, there are several others, but, you know, there one in four Native American women will be violently murdered by a non-Native. That is a fact, a statistic. If 25% of any other demographic was being murdered on a regular basis for many decades, I feel like something would have been done by now. Yeah, something should be being done. And I think that what we are asking for in the law changes is reasonable. Unless somebody has tagged some omnibus thing on there. I, that's a whole nother issue, but. Right, but it should have um, it it gone forward. And the people who might have put omnibuses on there should have not have done that. And this is another yes. problem that we have with our legal system. Well, yes, I think if omnibusing should be illegal, anything on the bill should pertain directly to the bill in some way. Yeah, people trying to sneak benefits back to their home state and clogging up the works of actually getting the work done. And I think really, and one of the other things is that we have issues that are far reaching. Mm-hmm. We have this kind of turnover rate. And I would really love to see kind of long-term committees that, that reach beyond, that reach beyond, Mm -hmm. like rotate in people. We used to have a whole committee that dealt with human trafficking, but that's one of those committees that we don't have anymore. Well, it's not because it went away. No, it was intentionally taken away. Wow. So yeah, there's a lot of, there's a lot of, there's a lot of work to do and it, yeah, yeah, it's, so that bill that's laying there on Mitch McConnell's desk right now, seems like it's a a thing that, that a very, I think it's an important step. Yeah. An important step. It's by no means the only step, but I think being able to have them investigated (laughs) Right. Is a darn good start. There should definitely be a way. Well, if they're going to, if only the FBI can investigate it, then they actually need, then the FBI needs to be able to allot people to do the investigations. You can't say well, the that problem the is priority wise, it's low on the totem pole. I, what I'm saying is that if, if you're not going to change it so that the local PD or, you know, reservation people can investigate it, and you're going to assign it to the FBI, then the FBI needs to have the resources and be able to prioritize it to investigate it. Otherwise, oh. don't bring, you know, assign it to someone else. <laughs> assign it to, yes. definitely assign it to someone who can investigate it and bring it to conclusion and bring it to prosecution so that people can stop feeling like it's okay and you can just get away with it if it's Native Girl. Mm-hmm. Because that's bullshit. Yes. Oh, I know what I was going to say earlier when we were talking about the trafficking thing. The other thing that I see as a big change is for a long time, these young girls were looked at as prostitutes instead of as victims. 
And it's not to say that there may not be some who chose that lifestyle, but I think the vast majority of them are trafficked and they are brought into it unwilling. Um, you know, they've, they've been having survivor stories shared on a lot of the MMIW sites. And, you know, these guys are tricky. And um, looking at these girls as victims instead of punishing them as sex offenders, because if you're taken and drugged and chained to a bed, what choice do you have about how many men rape you that night? Mm. And so is she really a prostitute or is she a victim of trafficking? Right. And yes, some of them get beyond the chained part and they may have more freedoms, but that's because they've been brainwashed, brainwashed. and they're afraid. Um, and so they, you know, there, there's it. I think that viewpoint of not looking at them and being called, you know, whore, slut, what have you, that just adds to the victim's trauma. Because yeah. for most of those girls, that was not their choice. They did not have the option of saying no. Right. This and is I think more needs to be done to recognize that the pimps and the traffickers should get greater punishment because they're using these, you know, psychological and physical abuses um, to really trap these girls in these kinds of situations. And are we helping them by making them feel worse about themselves when they already do? Mm. Yeah. You know, a lot of people talk to me about things because, you know, I've been quite open about my past to people, at least on an individual basis for <laughs> decades now. And, you know, people will tell me things and one of, I can't, I can't count exactly how many times someone has given me their, I lost my, this is how I lost my virginity story. And mm -hmm. I'm kind of like that. You were raped. <laughs> yeah. With it, what you just described to me was rape. Yes. And then that person, that girl, that woman has internalized that that was, that was the day that she lost her virginity and never processed well, it out as a rape. Yes. And I think a lot of that is because society has always kind of hush hushed, um, let it go. Don't think about it. I know that um, there was a case where I became friends with a family and was given a spiritual vision that helped me to see that one of the young males had been molested mm. in the past. At the time, um, person was in their early 20s, and this had actually happened when they were about five. And it was because the um, perpetrator had just moved back in, and I had sensed some strange energy between them and prayed about it and was given this vision, which in the end I found out was true, but it's like everybody was upset that I had brought this to light and they're like, well, why are you bringing this up? You know, that's in the past. And, um, you know, the, the person confided to me that they did tell their grandmother when it happened. Oh. And the grandmother patted him on the back and said, well, that's okay. It happened to me. It happened to your mom. This happens sometimes in families. You just 
don't talk about it. <laughs> oh, no. And unfortunately, to this very day, that young individual still has a lot of problems with their own sexuality, with relationships, with trust sure. issues, because they're, they don't want to go to counseling. They still have this stigma. They don't want to, they just want to forget it. They don't want to revisit the experience. Right. And deal with the trauma. And it's like, but this is destroying your life today. Yeah, I have an extraordinary it, it number. be dealt with extraordinary number of males have talked to me about male sexual abuse the sexual abuse of males and it's really more rampant and and you know because because i'm open about it right and they're like how do you how do you handle it how do you get by you know Mm -hmm. how do you get by with it i'm like you know (laughs) well you know the only thing i can you know i look back i don't know you know what i mean i look back i'm Mm -hmm. thinking well i said i I remember telling one of my therapists who was saying, how did you survive? Cause it was bad, Tanya, it was bad. And I was like, well, you know, I said, I wasn't abused every minute. Yeah. <laughs> and, <clears throat> and then, you know, and I thought about it cause I was there in my counseling session. You, know, you can't just get away with a quip. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> You're not allowed to just say that. Dig a little deeper, baby. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I think, cause I was outside a lot. I was in nature a lot. I was, um, in addition to having been abused, I was neglected quite a bit to, to my favor because I could just run the street. You know, I just was outside and all the time. Nature is great therapy. And I find nature unsupervised. So I had the sun and I had trees and I, I you know, communed with the little spiders that hung out on the playgrounds. Um, it was, yeah, lonely and stark, but, you know, I had this like sunshine, um, just how it feels on your skin and you know on a summer day the way that the grass sounds when the wind goes through it mm-hmm. and the sky I mean these things were just I could just breathe and mm-hmm. just be there and those were like the treasures they were the reasons to stay alive and I suppose that for me I collected them I collected those beautiful feelings and emotions and they buffered me to some degree from not the effects of it because I've been dealing with the effects of it for decades but at least the it gave me some string from the past to the present of positivity to bring with me you know it's so hard as a child because you really have so little control over your physical circumstances right yeah, you, I mean, you manipulate your situation as best you can. <laughs> That's why I, when I went to therapy, that was why I went. That was like the reason, the reason I went to therapy. And I, I went in to like, why, why did you come here today? And I said, well, I noticed that my friends just ask for what they want and people give it to them. And I, I find myself trying to manipulate the situation to be the way that I want to. And I want to be able to do the other thing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because but I, you recognize that in yourself. Right. But there was no, like, I didn't go in there being like, yeah, well, I was horribly traumatized. (laughs) Well, I think sometimes we tend to gloss over our trauma and bury it under layers of whatnot. Right. It's just like, well, I don't, I don't want to be manipulative. I'd like to be open and honest, like the people, you know, like, like my friends are so that I can stop trying to like finagle the situation to be the way that I want to. And I can just say, Hey, you know, do you guys want to go to the bar? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which you would think is something simple to say, but for me it was not. It was kind of like, 
I don't know. Marin was thinking, you know, Marin, Marin was on the show last time. Marin was thinking about maybe going to the bar, <laughs> mentioned it to someone else who might want to go. And they're like, oh, that's a good idea. And the next thing you know, we're all going to the bar. But I never ask people to go to the bar. There's no rejection yeah. there. Yes. Right? Yes. That is, yes. You see, there's the, a way to manipulate, to manipulate mm-hmm. by just making an observation. You make an observation to the right person at the right time in the right way. And that person arranges the thing that you want to have happen. Mm-hmm. And so it was a very passive aggressive sort of way of dealing with the world. Yeah. It's very, very passive. I wasn't aggressive, you know, because like they, I wouldn't have hurt my feelings or anything if nobody had gone, no one would have been punished, but definitely a passive way of interacting with the world because it was never okay for me to ask for the things that I needed. So you never had moments where you got upset about it. And I mean, you may not have been aggressive to others, but I could see beating yourself up about it. Oh yeah. Which would be the, yeah. Yeah. The aggressive was aggression for me is always internalized. Yes. Because depression is anger turned inward. You know, I think about depression quite a bit in in terms of stalled and stagnant anger. And I think as energy, as you know, you're an empath and I'm an energy worker, um, that for some people, a depressed state of being is frozen and stagnated anger. Mm -hmm. And I think that for extremely, and I've had other conversations with other people who've, who've survived traumas that are just beyond description, really, who, oh, I, I, that's why I get so, because yeah, I, I have heard the stories too, and anytime you read books or watch it on TV, it's the PG version, right. if you're going to be really, really horrible, but they never tell the whole truth, they never tell it and I feel like sometimes people need to have how ugly it is shoved in their face mm. to recognize what a problem it is. So but then nobody takes, wants to hear that. Right. And then you take someone and you say, it's okay to be angry. And you're like, you have no idea. You can't tell me it's okay to be angry. And we were talking about this, me and this other lady were talking about this, that it's like, we get to determine whether it's okay for us to be angry. You are not safe if I'm anger. You don't want to be in the same room with me when I allow myself to touch this anger. And it's not that we're dangerous. It's that we feel, you know, that's how dangerous it feels to go there because you're talking about um, a kind of trauma that would have extinguished your life. So your reaction to it is that you want to preserve your life. You will do anything. Like if you are drowning, you will do, you swim as hard as you can. You know what I mean? Like every survival skill, every survival the high um, adrenaline system. trauma. Yes, that's what I'm saying. The high adrenaline trauma. Every survival system that you have, uh, your cortisol is going to spike. You, your your heart rate's going to go up. You are going to be ready to fight, to run, to destroy, and it's going to be blind because if your life is about to be extinguished, if your life is about to be extinguished, you are not looking at what. To preserve, the, you know, you're, you you don't have judgment. Your judgment now has fled, right? And your only only goal is then to survive. And so I think there's a lot of, I think that psychology and psychologists have a long way to go to understand that 
certain certain safeguards have to be in place psychologically before the trauma, the complex trauma survivor and the devastating trauma survivor um, can access the anger that they feel about that. You can't just be like, okay, today we're doing anger. Yeah. That there has to be some safeguards. There has to be some other work that has to be done before you can access. I I have done a lot of work on anger management (laughs) and it doesn't work for everyone, but I like anger management through sword play. I will get a nice big log and I, I have swords and large battle axe type things. Some people (laughs) use a hatchet. I like the big battle axe. It just feels more satisfying. And you can chop that wood and picture whoever's face or whatever situation. And the fact that it requires physical labor helps because when you're done, you're, you've exhausted mentally, physically, emotionally, and you've been able to have an outlet for all of that, that was as violent as you needed and yet safe for others. Right. Exactly. I used to stack wood in Vermont. That was my thing. I'd stack wood because throwing wood, you know, we'd have like seven cords just dumped down the chute in the basement and you could stack for hours and not be, you know what I mean? And when I say stack, I mean like I'd throw it across the room into the stack. (laughs) Um, And here in Milwaukee, I've been, and in Finley, um, racquetball for me Mm -hmm. alone on the court with just music because once, once I got good enough that I could sustain a volley it gave me the focus and it became meditative at some point. Like, so anything that was bothering me would come up like in meditation, but I'd have that physical whack it, whack it, whack it, you know what I mean? Yeah. Which don't, and then I'd have the music going. And that was just where I could get it out. And I think that makes it comes to another point. It's not like you can access being angry about having been traumatized one time and then boom, you're good to go. Oh, no. <laughs> No, I remember thinking I had dealt with all my anger issues and I had a, you know, a good decade or so where I was very mellow and Zen and then standing rock happened Mm. and it reminded me that I had not, I I was not done with my anger. Yeah. And I think this comes to some of the generational things because I think standing rock was um, a precursor to some of what we're seeing now. Yes. Standing rock was, was the trial run of how much force can the police use against unarmed citizens Mm. Mm. i hadn't yeah i hadn't thought about it that way but well i mean you look at a lot of the techniques that they used there and how how often are they being used again now Mm. and which populations are they choosing a violent response versus those that they are not that's definitely become very clear that's Yeah, there's definitely got to be an accounting. Because, you know, when it comes to crime and punishment, my thought is you do the crime, you do the time. I don't care who you are, how rich you are, whatever, you know, you got to fess up and take the knocks you've, you've chosen, you know, I mean, you chose the crime, therefore you deserve the punishment, but it should be fair and equal across the board. It should. It should be fair and equal across the board. It's ridiculous that it's not. And it's in fact, wasn't that why so many Europeans came originally to the US was to get away from those kind of stacked systems? 
Oh, and here of- we've fallen back into the same thing. Hmm. There was a lot of different reasons. I mean, the strain of ultra conservatism that we're seeing now is directly related to how um, Europe pushed off some of their more extreme religious people by saying, you know, you can't practice that religion like that here, get on this boat and go to the Americas. Yeah. <laughs> and so that's, impo- you know, a lot of that's imported. And mm-hmm. I think there's a strain, uh, uh, similarly, there's a strain of imported uh, religious conservatism in Australia as well uh, for some yeah. reasons. So, you know, Europe, it was convenient. And there's Europe. a lot of similarities in the way the indigenous people, uh, the aborigines in Australia are treated and the Maori in New Zealand with what's happened to the Native Americans. One of the really neat things about Standing Rock was how indigenous people from all over the world, and that's not all people of color. I mean, the Sami people are still indigenous and they're very white, yet, you know, they're still facing the same problems. Being white isn't saving them from Mm -hmm. the same kinds of prejudice. No, and the indigenous population in Japan also is facing a lot of the similar issues. And so it's, you know, what, you know, I've always had this kind of question myself. What is it about us that makes us so afraid of people that are different? So, yeah, I wonder, I had, um, God, I saw somebody ask a really good question and it was to white people. It was like, what are you doing to touch back to your tribal roots? Mm, like that's a big isn't that a good question it, it it well you know because a lot of na- people get interested in native spirituality and may have you know ancestral ties to natives and my thought is why don't you look at you know your own people because when you go back you know pre crusade era everybody had tribal indigenous people and exactly. they all used feathers and paint and lived in a similar way and there's so many really neat tribes that once existed throughout Europe that they could be drawing on and I don't I mean the cultural appropriation thing you know I always you know you have to temper it to a certain extent but um you know I think maybe these people are wanting to reach back to that own tribal ancestry and they're finding the closest thing that they can, but unfortunately, a lot of the literature about Native American spirituality is rarely accurate. Um, it's kind of a, a joke among natives that you know, if some white guy shows up um, and he wants to learn about our people and our spirituality, send him to the Hayoka, because the Hayoka speaks backwards. <laughs> <laughs> So if they say, go talk to that person and do this thing, what they really mean is don't talk to this person and don't do that thing. And so if you kind of look at it from that angle, you can see why most of the books written really aren't accurate. Mm. (laughs) That's interesting. I think, well, there, so Celtic religions and, you know, I'm, I don't know because I was adopted. I don't really know what my ancestry is, which makes it difficult to adopt any kind of thing. But I did um, do the National Geographic DNA testing when they had mm-hmm. that out. And so, you know, I'm a lot Western European. I know that you're shocked. You're surprised. <laughs> <laughs> and and I have a great deal of Finnish in me as well. And then I, there's like some small little place in the Ukraine, like some little bitty 
gypsy tribe that's connected to Finland that I am genetically related to. Oh, yeah, it's and, weird. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, and um, I've actually I went to Scotland. I have uh, relatives that moved there from Jamaica, and I when I went over to visit, I actually got to go up in the Highlands and meet some of the Celtic tribal people. And you know, we got along great. You know their clans are pretty much like our clans and you know the red deer was one of their highly respected animals and I was given a piece of red deer antler as a gift great and I mean it was just it was really really neat that we were able to connect on how many ways were similar which is actually what had initially got me looking at you know hey let's look at some of these other European tribes and you know when you look at like the the Vikings who you know Sweden, Finland, Mm -hmm. Denmark, um, you know, they had a lot of cultural similarities to the natives. Um, You know, in fact, they were among the first people who actually came to North America, but they just didn't have a big war with us. Right. You know, right. Because they got along. Okay. Nifty, whatever, you know, and you'll find some traces of their blood in, in people, but it wasn't, it wasn't like colonialism. They weren't coming to take all the land and resources and enslave people. Right. So in the United States here, we see any kind of hearkening to um, Celtic uh, traditions, tribal Celtic traditions, and we label that paganism. Oh, yeah. So, you know, it makes it difficult for people to explore, whereas, you know, indigenous tribes... You see what I'm saying? So some people Mm -hmm. try to sneak around having to deal with the issue that like, it's okay to explore the tribal origins of your people. They have a, they have a very limited view without threatening your Christianity creator. Yeah. Exactly. (laughs) And that's the thing is they have a limited view of God. And what I always, what I always try to say, and it doesn't always come across to them is, you know, if God is omnipresent, meaning present everywhere, then don't you think that you can find traces of that deep spiritual truth in all these things? Um, You know, the the Dalai Lama wrote a great book um, in 2000 called Ethics for a New Millennium, where Mm -hmm. he espoused this concept of interreligious harmony. Yes. And he went through all the, the major religious rules that are found in every major spiritual genre of collect however you want to call them groups and that they exist in all those places but then he he excluded ethics and morality and he just went through some basic simple facts that prove why that rule is good um i always use the example of the whole you know thou shalt not commit adultery Um, A lot of cultures value monogamy. Well, you know, there's diseases you can pass. There's the loss of trust. There's, and so, you know, he went through listing reasons that had nothing to do with morality, but were just, you know, these are the logical conclusions that occur when that happens. And so for that reason, you have less pain and suffering Mm. if you, follow that I mean and there there are polygamous cultures and the Vikings were one where they Mm -hmm. they didn't view sex with other people as 
degrading a marriage, but those, those cultures are few. <laughs> well, in, in Africa, there was a, uh, it, they didn't consider themselves polygamous. They considered themselves married, but they had like spouses and like in every town during, along the trade routes. And, and the, the reason that came to light was because I want to say it had something to do I think with the transmission of sexually transmitted diseases. Ah. Mm-hmm. And so we're <laughs> wondering, they're like, so if you're saying that you're only with your spouse, how but is- you have <laughs> 10 wives <laughs> each in a different town. And so I think that the culturally, you know, the global view of sexuality is not static, you know, or unique. Mm-hmm. And um, I mean, or it is more unique than we'd like to believe. And in different cultures, it's expressed in different ways. You know, in Saudi Arabia, people were surprised to find out that there's like a 50% um, divorce rate in Saudi Arabia. Mm-hmm. And I was surprised when I lived there to find out that there, in some Middle Eastern countries, and I'm not sure which ones, there are such things as weakened marriages. Okay. Basically <laughs> an excuse to do what you want to do that will be sanctified. So this kind of, perhaps we need to think a little bit about what, um, you know, in Saudi Arabia, you can, if you're a male, you can have four wives as long as they are, have equal accommodations. And so when they do their buildings and they plan their communities, there are quads of houses Mm -hmm. um, and apartments. And it's, it's just interesting to me that it's interesting to me that we give rise to this, you know, ancient Irish law had seven levels of marriage, including a trial year marriage, mm-hmm. which I find really interesting. And I think that what we see, what we see in our society is this romantic idealized one-to-one for the rest of your, you know, from the beginning of your romantic period to the end of your life, this one single great love. And it fails to recognize and our laws fail to reflect and our culture fails to reflect that life is way more complicated than that. And it does happen for some people. They, you natives, know, they need natives have part. different levels and types of marriage too. And so those levels, like not being able to acknowledge these different levels and types of marriage from a legal standpoint allowed um, in Ireland for pe- there not to be, to be fewer bastards to be fewer mm-hmm. unclaimed children so that the children would be able to claim um, a right of property based on their, the status of the marriage. And their legitimacy. Yeah. And their legitimacy. Exactly my point. So in these days, we, it's like either or you're married or you're not married. You were either out of wedlock or you're not out of wedlock. And, you know, and there's no other thing. There's no like year long trial marriage. How great would that be for some people? Yep. You know, and going back to like some of the traumas are cultural and societal traumas. People are not always ready at their first time falling in love. They don't have the necessary skills or healing to navigate a lifelong relationship. A lot of times these initial relationships, whether dating or early marriages are healing, very healing for both people. They Mm -hmm. are learning how to be in a relationship that's maybe healthier than the one that they observed growing up. And, but there's this great big stigma. Oh, you got divorced, mm-hmm. you know, and it's kind of like, well, 
that doesn't mean it was bad. You know, (laughs) yeah, that doesn't mean that wasn't where I needed to be at the time. It allowed me to learn and grow to be in the place where I am now, where people change, life changes. Right. And so if I think that a lot of this strictness and this um, kind of repression, you know, like we're culturally, people are being oppressed. Personally, on the personal level, people are being repressed, you know, and that, you know, tribal laws or tribal rules and wild women and like rampant sexuality, God forbid, people having sex and enjoying it. (laughs) Yeah. You know I mean? well, my thought has always been any consensual sexual act between adults is their business the key words being consensual and adult right so you know i've got nothing against polygamy i mean if people want to be grown-ups and make arrangements that don't make sense to other people you know be happy you know dude be happy. I someone was telling me about a guy they knew who decided marriage wasn't for him, but that you know he still he had all these relationships with women, and I, I was just going to go out like that. That was his life now, and you know, he was kind of looking at me. I'm like, I'm not interested in your friend, man. Yeah, <laughs> but I mean, good for him. Yeah, <laughs> good. For it's him. your thing. I don't. You know, it's it's as long as you're not hurting anyone else, do your thing. So, but the fact that our society doesn't, you know, wants to legislate morality. Yes. That is a big problem. They forget freedom means allowing other people to do things you don't agree with as long as they're not harming another. Right. And so, you know, balancing that kind of understanding that somehow this global different values and levels of marriages and different ways that people um, are sexually active with other people was not bound by this one-to-one sweetheart to grave thing. That's a romantic notion that's given rise culturally very recently, actually. And so it's not like we need to strip back like marriages and this, that, and the other, but think about how we legally set rules like we set rules at the hospital that your spouse Mm -hmm. or immediate family can come and visit you but for someone like myself I didn't want my parents you know what I mean like I wouldn't want my immediate family to come and visit me at the hospital I would want my friends to come so why can't I just have five people slots for five people come visit me at the hospital and I can fill them in however I want and it doesn't matter how they are may or may not be related to me Yes. We, we need to That's, rethink how we legally and corporately assign family. Well, and um, I, I have a number of Christian conservative patients. And I remember um, when gay marriage was legalized, a lot of them were all up in arms about how it was destroying the sanctity of marriage and so on and so forth. And one of the examples that I would use for them is someone in the ICU. You know, if your spouse is dying in the ICU, don't you want to be able to go and see them? Well, they can't go see their spouse unless they are married. And what about health insurance? You know, they can't share health insurance. And, you know, trying to point out that there are benefits that you get from marriage that it's not fair to prevent these other people from having just because you personally 
don't agree with their union. Right. Like, don't and what a lot of people forget is they've become much more accepting of interracial marriage, but they still treat homosexual marriage like some kind of, you know, dirty word. And why? You know, right, what, do you want to give it a different word? Do you want to give it, you know, legal partnership, whatever? The, you know, the, the point is people get certain benefits and those benefits should be equally available across the board. Right. And they were so busy stuck on their little concept that it never even occurred to them to look at. There might be other reasons why these people seek validation of their partnership. Right. There's a lot of good reasons. And I think that culturally, again, I'm just going to say that this idea that we can be in each other's business <laughs> mm-hmm. and say, you know, it's kind of like, it's like moving into a neighborhood. Okay. Certain neighborhoods have housing agreements. Mm-hmm. And when you go into that neighborhood, they give you this list. Like now you, if you buy this house, you belong to this housing association. Mm-hmm. Okay. And you have to agree not to put a shed, you know, and don't build a tree house. Your fence can only be six feet high, whatever. Right. Yeah. And mm-hmm. you sign that and you agree that. And so a lot of people believe that when the United States was set up, that Christianity got this, with this housing agreement, like for the whole country based on these Christian values. And but we have freedom of religion, therefore. Right, but we have freedom of religion. <laughs> it cannot be. It, it cannot be that. You see what I'm saying? So they, mm-hmm. they act, they try to act like these, these things, like you can't put your fence up six feet high. Well, that's just a nuisance. If you didn't sign the agreement, the housing agreement, you know, if you're not a part of that home association, you don't have to worry about how high you put your fence up. Exactly. It's nobody's business how high you put your fence up. Exactly. The Which other comes thing, back to other issues that they like to complain about. Right. And so, and we but get, but they to, can never see it from another person's perspective. They see it only from their viewpoint. Right. And they don't understand that the, the, the drive to do these things, to restrict other people's freedoms in this way, um, leads America, the United States of America, right down the path to a theocracy, which I do not think that we actually want to live in. A theocracy, yeah. <laughs> you know, freedom and I did. is a good thing. And like I said, freedom means people can do whatever they want as long as they aren't harming another person or damaging property. Thank you for joining us on Wendy Says Things. We were talking with Tanya Floyd today, who's a health and wellness practitioner. Please feel free to check out the transcript, which contains a lot of articles and the research that was done during this episode. And keep an eye out for the upcoming episode, which is the conclusion of three parts of Talking with Tanya. Thank you for tuning in today.